1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we begin in verse 1 where Paul writes, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, and sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 11. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention in particular to the words of verses 9 and 10 from the section we just read. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. And I want you to underscore from verse 10, in particular, that part of the verse that says, Christ for us, who died for us, Christ for us. And then a little further down, we with him, we should live together with him. Christ for us, we with him. It's what I want to focus on this morning in preparation for our time around the Lord's table. It's a wonderful little banner of truth book written by Hugh Martin. Hugh Martin is one of my favorite preachers, a theologian, Scottish Presbyterian from the 19th century. He has a book of sermons that is entitled Christ for Us. And uh, I'm sure that he's drawing from this text in one of those sermons as the title sermon for that book. But Christ for us, we with him, these verses clearly indicate to us, verses 9 and 10, that our salvation is secure. It's secure because it's backed by a divine decree. The word appoint conveys the idea of setting, fixing, establishing, or ordaining. And regarding what God has appointed, we find it expressed both negatively and positively. We are not appointed to wrath. There's the negative side of the equation. 
expressing what we are not appointed to. This word would have come to the Thessalonians as a word of great encouragement amid their trials and afflictions. Trials may apply to the here and now, but this is the only place that we're going to know them. In the greater picture or the broader context of eternity, we are not appointed to wrath, but we are appointed rather to something else. And this is the positive side now of the decree. We are appointed to obtain salvation. So negatively, not to wrath. And my, how that ought to stir our hearts this morning. Because if we're honest before God, and we know our own hearts, and you've been given the grace to see that at your best you come short of God's glory, and you've transgressed his law many times, we are worthy candidates for his wrath, but we are not appointed to wrath but rather we are appointed to obtain salvation. And the word obtain is a noun in the original text. The only way we can take a verb and express it as a noun is to turn it into a participle. So some would translate the verse to say that we're appointed to the acquiring of salvation. What I like about the noun in the text is that it also occurs in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 14, and it tells us with regard to the Holy Spirit that he is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. Underscore that phrase, purchased possession, This phrase is one word in the original, and it's the same word as the word obtain in our text. And so you begin to see the strength of the argument that our salvation is secure. It's secure because it's backed by an eternal decree. We haven't been appointed to wrath, but we have been appointed to the acquiring of salvation. And this decree is even more firmly established because Christ has purchased us to himself through the price of his blood. You are his purchased possession, which means then you belong to him, and because of that, he will never let you go. You can be assured that he will guard what is his, especially when he has paid such a high price for it. And he paid a very high price for you, the price of his blood. What I want to draw your attention to, however, is the words of verse 10. With reference to Christ, we read in that verse, Christ died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. This verse brings to our attention two different, what you might call, classifications of scripture. One classification refers to what Christ has done for us. He died for us, in the words of our text. He suffered for us, 1 Peter 2.21. He maketh intercession for us, Romans 8.34. He hath made him, that is, God hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us. 
That's 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. Or if I could borrow the phrases that Christ himself used when he set up the communion feast. He said in Luke 22 and verse 19, This is my body which is given for you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. Luke 22 and verse 20. The other classification of scriptures is expressed by the phrase, we with him. Whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Romans 6, 4, we are buried with him by baptism into death. Romans 6 and verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Buried with him in baptism, risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. That's Colossians 2 and verse 12. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. That's 2 Timothy 2, 11. And one more, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. 2 Timothy 2, 12. So we have two categories then, two classifications of Scripture. One refers to what Christ has done for us. The other refers to what we do with him. Only in our text today, in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 10, do we find both of these categories actually coming together in the same verse. He died for us. We live with him. Hugh Martin makes a very interesting observation regarding these two classifications of Scripture. He notes that every expression of the form Christ for us may be regarded as having its corresponding relative expression, we with him. And by understanding how these expressions correspond to each other, we are enabled to enter into communion with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Hugh Martin goes on to say, listen to what he writes, The truth of these expressions is grounded on our actual union to Christ by the Spirit. For he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. He hath received the spirit of Christ, is joined unto him. And being so joined or united with him in all that he did and became and suffered for us, we have communion with him. If he lived for us, we now live with him. If he was tempted for us, we are now tempted with him. If he watched for us, we watch with him. If he died and rose and appeared in the presence of God for us, we die and rise and appear in the presence of God with him, passing safely with him through the executed and exhausted curse of God and up even to the Father's throne of grace. All this is with Christ, having access by faith with him into the grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God when we shall depart and be literally with him 
which is far better. What I'd like to do today in preparation for our time around the Lord's table is to consider a number of these verses from the two classifications I just described. The phrases, Christ for us and we with him. Consider with me first that from the phrase, Christ for us, we discover that we are the objects of his affection. We are the objects of his affection. From the moment of his incarnation, you could say that Christ demonstrated his love, his affection for his people. The angelic announcement of his birth shows this when the angels announced to the shepherds and indeed to all Christ's followers in succeeding generations, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. That's Luke 2.11. He verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 and verse 20, but was manifest in these last times for you. The Son of God becoming man. This is what we remember around this table. The bread reminds us that he was manifested for us. Now, it's true, and we dare never lose sight of it, that his ultimate aim was to glorify his Father. Paul makes that a point of emphasis in Ephesians chapter 1, that the planning and execution and end of salvation is ultimately to the praise of the glory of his grace. And we dare never lose sight of that. But, on the other hand, this in no way diminishes the glorious truth that we are the objects of his love and that his coming into this world was with the aim of our well-being. He was manifested for us. He was born for us. And all that he did while he walked in this world was done for us, up to and including his atoning death. And so we find multiplied expressions throughout the New Testament that we're familiar with. Romans 5 and verse 8, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here is as close a connection as you can find between his love and his death. His death was the expression of his love, and all that he accomplished in his death shows the greatness of his love. His love is toward us. <coughs> His death is for us. And then a statement that demonstrates God's everlasting loyalty to us. Paul asks in Romans 8 and verse 31, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? God's love and loyalty to us is greater than the combined forces of earth and hell when those forces conspire against us. And how can we know this? 
Where do we draw such assurance that God's love and loyalty are steadfast and sure? Well, Paul answers the question he raises in the very next verse. In Romans 8 and verse 32, He that spared not his son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Here then is how we know and are sure that God is for us. He spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. These elements serve the purpose of reminding us powerfully that God is with us and God is for us. Who is he that condemneth? Paul asks two verses later, Romans 8:34. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. His coming into the world, then, is for us. His death on the cross is for us. His appearance in heaven is for us. His intercession is for us. You begin to see from this simple phrase how strong a case can be made for the love of Christ toward his people. He is for us. I'm fond around the Lord's table especially of reminding you of the strong link between Christ's intercession for us and his atonement. During his sufferings from Calvary's cross, he was engaged in the priestly work of intercession. Such was his love and loyalty to us that he would plead for our salvation throughout the course of his sufferings, and he would ground his plea in what was being accomplished by those sufferings, Father, forgive them, would be his plea, for they know not what they do. In the ignorance of their sin, the Jews and Romans certainly had no clue what they were doing, for had they known it, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 8, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But while sinners had no clue as to what they were really doing, God certainly knew what Christ was doing, and Christ himself certainly knew what he was doing. He was satisfying divine justice. He was providing the grounds upon which his prayer for the forgiveness of his people could be answered positively. And when we read of him being at the right hand of God, now interceding for us, we can be confident that his prayers will be heard because he bases his intercession on his atoning work. His intercession and his atoning work, you could say, work together then for us. We find other expressions in the New Testament also that make the point that Christ is for us. Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for us. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Galatians 3 and verse 13. For he hath made him to be sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Christ also suffered for us. 1 Peter 2, 21. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. 1 John 3, 16. 
You stop and think about it, that's really quite a powerful phrase, isn't it? Those two words, for us. It embraces Christ's incarnation, his sufferings, his death, his willingness in that death to have our sins imputed to him. And the power of that phrase becomes even more compelling when you look at what this phrase means in the original. The simple word for in the Greek means on behalf of or for the sake of. And so you find the idea of Christ as our substitute and you find the idea of Christ as our representative. Indeed, I think you can find instances when both meanings come into play. So when we read that he laid down his life for us, 1 John 3.16, we can say that he did this on our behalf and he did this for our sake. And so we glory in Christ by remembering all that he has done for us. And we glory in these things around his table. We can bask in his love. We should revel in his grace when we remember all that he's done for us. But let's move on and consider the next phrase, the next category of scripture verses, which comes from the phrase, with him. And under this point, we draw the lesson that there is a sense in which we participate in his actions. We participate in his actions. Our text tells us he died for us and that we live together with him. These statements are based, as Hugh Martin notes, upon our union with him. By virtue of the fact that we are joined to him, we can say that we are buried with him, that our old man has been crucified with him, that we have been quickened or raised to life with him. Ephesians 2, 5, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. Hugh Martin draws an interesting distinction between our person being crucified with Christ, and our old nature being crucified with Christ. Regarding our person being crucified with Christ, the testimony of Scripture is that, nevertheless, we live. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless, I live. Galatians 2.20 the same cannot be said for our old nature. The testimony of Scripture regarding the old nature is that our old nature is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed. That's Romans 6 and verse 6. And the thing to remember when you think upon these verses that speak of our participation in Christ's action is that these statements of Scripture convey to us what some call positional truths. We are thinking on our position in Christ when we say that we are crucified with him, we are buried with him, we rose with him. It's these positional truths that provide the basis for God to view us through his Son. How is it that in obedience to the gospel, we can count ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. 
that really is, and I know I've said this in the past, but I don't think I've said it recently, counting ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God through Christ is, in my estimation, the essence of gospel obedience. Is it because we perceive with our senses that sin has no grip on us anymore? Well, quite the contrary. Unfortunately, our senses tells us too often that sin is alive and well and that its grip on us is strong. Our senses tell us that we transgress still and that we come short of the glory of God. Very often our senses tells us that we are alive to sin and dead to God. How often do we feel more that way than the other? How often must we lament the fact that heaven seems like brass and God seems far from us and our whole religion seems at times to be a cunningly devised fable? Indeed, if the devil can tempt us into paying too much attention to our senses, then he'll lure us into thinking and acting as if the gospel of Christ is just a cunningly devised fable. Does this mean, then, that our whole approach to Christianity amounts to striving to live in a world of make-believe? I'm afraid some Christians approach their walk with the Lord as if that were the case. They look at that exhortation in Romans 6 and verse 11, which tells us to count ourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. And they interpret the verse to mean that we're supposed to pretend that we're dead to sin and alive to God, or that we're to strive to be dead to sin and alive to God. Both notions are incorrect. We're not called upon to live in a make-believe world. That's the kind of thinking that gives rise to hypocrisy or to perfectionism. All that the false doctrine of perfectionism accomplishes is to lower the standards of God's laws and raise the notions of our abilities to keep those laws. That takes us into a world of make-believe, and it doesn't sanctify us. It instead caters to carnal pride, or it leaves us in the depths of despair. Nor does that verse in Romans 6.11 teach us that we're to strive to be dead to sin and alive to God. There is, to be sure, a place for striving in the Christian life, I'll say more about that in a moment. But when Paul tells us to count ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God, he's not merely expressing an ideal that we strive for. He's expressing, rather, a recognized fact. Or in other words, we're to count ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God because we are, in fact, just that. We are dead to sin. And we are alive to God. We are dead to sin, not because we strive to be or because we pretend to be that we are. No, we are dead to sin because we are positionally joined to Christ in his death. 
the previous verse to Romans 6.11. Romans 6.10 gives us the basis for counting ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Verse 10 tells us, for in that he died, he died unto sin once. There's the basis for you and I counting ourselves to be dead unto sin. Christ died unto sin, and he did this once. He did it once and for all, and we died with him, positionally joined to him. And then verse 10 goes on to say, But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. There's the basis for you and I counting ourselves to be alive unto God. Christ lives unto God, and we are joined to Christ. It's based on what Christ has done and is doing that God views us positionally as dead to sin and alive to him. God doesn't pretend that we're dead to sin. No, he, you could say, legally views us as dead to sin. And God doesn't pretend or suggest that we merely strive to be alive to him. No, he views us legally or positionally to be alive to him because he views us as being joined to his son. And his son is beyond all dispute alive to him. All this then gives us the significance of that phrase, with him. We are joined to him. He is our covenant head. His actions count for our actions because of our union to him. And so we find the significance of the scriptures, Christ for us, we with him. If I can quote again a portion that I quoted earlier from Hugh Martin, if he died and rose and appeared in the presence of God for us, we die and rise and appear in the presence of God with him, passing safely with him through the executed and exhausted curse of God and up even to the Father's throne of grace. It remains for us then to consider finally and briefly the effects of these truths upon us. This ought to impact us deeply and profoundly. Christ for us, we with him. What impact should the truth of these things have upon us? One such effect is given to us in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, where Paul says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. The fact that Christ is sacrificed for us should stir our hearts to purge out the old leaven out of our lives. I said a moment ago that there is a place for striving in the Christian's life. It's not the kind of striving in which we pretend to be something we're not, but it's a striving that springs from the positional truth of we being with Christ. Ye are unleavened, that verse in 1 Corinthians tells us. 
That's the positional truth that is based on Christ being for us and we being with him. Because we are viewed legally and positionally by God as being free from sin, we are called upon to strive to be what God legally recognizes us to be. In other words, we strive to be righteous because Christ has imputed his righteousness to us. We strive to be righteous because Christ is righteous and we are joined to him. We're not striving to earn something from God. We're not striving to escape condemnation by our striving. Uh, No, not at all. Another verse that shows us the impact of the truth that Christ is with us and we with him is found in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us in offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Walk in love. There's the exhortation, and the exhortation is based on the truth that Christ is for us, that he gave himself for us in offering and a sacrifice to God. And if you find at times that walking in love is challenging because the very ones you are to love let you down and prove to be sources of disappointment to you, then you need to arm yourselves with the truth of Christ's love for you and ponder how unworthy you were of his love. I dare say that when you consider the contrast between Christ's worthiness and your unworthiness, then you'll conclude that you can and should demonstrate love even toward those that you might think are unworthy of your love. Do you remember how unworthy you are of Christ's love when you're tempted to think that way? Romans 6 and verse 4 speaks of us with him. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Walk in love, Ephesians 5, 2. Walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 4. Avoiding the service of sin, Romans 6 and verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And then I'll add Colossians 2 and verse 12, buried with him in baptism, where also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. The truth of Christ being for us and we being with him calls on us to exercise faith. And this is what should bring us to the Lord's table this morning. These elements preach to us that Christ is for us. And as we partake of these elements, we pledge our faith in Christ. We confess to God that we believe that in all Christ did for us, we did with him. And in this fashion, we are able to draw near to him now and live together with him in the coming days. I trust then this morning that these glorious truths of the New Testament 
will find sound lodging in your hearts, and that as you contemplate the wonderful and sublime truth that Christ is for you and you are with him, that you will indeed know his presence filling and thrilling your heart and working in you the zeal to purge the old leaven and walk in newness of life. Pretty amazing phrases, aren't they? So simple and so profound. Christ for us, we with him. Let's close then in prayer before we partake of the elements. Let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence, we thank thee for the glorious truth of the gospel. We thank thee for all that Christ did for us, died for us, was sacrificed for us. We thank thee he intercedes even now for us. And we thank thee, O Lord, for the glorious truth that we are joined to him, that we are with him in such a way that his actions counted for ours. We ask, O Lord, that as we contemplate these truths, we may indeed draw near to him and know his presence filling and thrilling our souls. So, Lord, hear our prayers now as we remember thy Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.